From Pure Advantage, I'm Simon Miller, and welcome to our podcast, the destination for leading-edge discussion with some of the world's experts in green growth, regenerative development, business, and climate change. Our Regenerative Future, Season 2, looks at Otatu Nahiri, our forest, and stems from our collaboration with project partners Tane's Tree Trust, New Zealand's preeminent native forest experts and scientists. Together, we've taken a deep dive into the regeneration of native forests as a source of natural, spiritual and economic value. The purpose of this series is to spark cross-sector dialogue and get people thinking about the potential for native forests in a regenerative and restorative economy. For listeners interested in a bit more, we produced a short documentary, Otato Nahiri, and compiled an array of expert contributions and videos, all hosted and freely available on pureadvantage.org and tarnaystrees.org. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for being on the journey to Our Regenerative Future Season 2. The Carbon Sink the role of native forests in meeting our net zero emissions target. In this webisode, host Vincent Herringer is joined by carbon experts, Dr. Mark Kimberley, consultant to Tane's Tree Trust, Dr. Sean Weaver of ECOS, and Matt Walsh of New Zealand Carbon Farming. Forests are considered essential in helping New Zealand meet its emission reduction targets. So how do existing and new native forests genuinely contribute, and over what time horizon? What are the myths and information gaps in evaluating the emissions reduction role of New Zealand native forests? Well, kia ora everybody. Welcome to this fifth webisode in the series of Otato Nahiri, produced by Pure Advantage and Tane's Tree Trust. We are very grateful for the collaboration of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship We'll be looking at climate change, the threats and opportunities to our Nahiri, and also what role forests and especially native forests can play in reaching our 2050 net zero emissions target for New Zealand. And I'm joined by three experts in this area, Dr. Mark Kimberley, a statistician formerly with Scion and now an independent consultant, uh, Dr. Sean Weaver, an expert in environmental finance and indigenous forest carbon markets, and Matt Walsh, who's the founder and MD of New Zealand Carbon Farming. So to our guests, in a minute, I'm going to ask our guests to introduce themselves, uh, but I might just do an ad, actually, because next week, the series continues and we have three amazing guests that are going to be talking to us about what role the government could play in expanding, protecting and enhancing our native Nahiri across New Zealand. And I think that's going to be a really good episode too, because, you know, there is so much that we expect of government to do, but if we could be very pointed in our expectations, you know, we might actually achieve something. So to our guests, well, I wonder if I could get them all to introduce themselves and we might start with you, Matt. Tell us about who you are a little bit and uh, what interests you in forests and in native forests especially. 
Thanks, Vince. Uh, Matt Walsh from New Zealand Carbon Farming. Uh, our business is about growing trees to preserve the planet. Uh, so we own and manage the largest privately owned conservation estate in New Zealand, and we grow those trees to contribute to climate change, not for harvest. We've been doing that for more than a decade, and we have 66 million trees that we're growing uh, to protect the climate. Across is that the all? Sorry? Sorry, I was being facetious. 66 million trees seems like a lot. It is really a lot, uh, and um, but that's uh, just getting started from our point of view. We have lots more to do. And when we started out, we all had young kids, and so we wanted to do something that would make a difference for their futures as well as for all New Zealanders. Yeah. And at the time, climate change was already out there as a problem, but really very little was being done to address it. And so we established New Zealand carbon farming as a way of investing and doing something to make a difference for the climate. And for us, we saw the opportunity to establish permanent nature reserves that will continue to have a positive impact over hundreds of years. And as we've grown, we've attracted passionate, talented people who love the idea of getting up in the morning and going to work to help the environment, which is what our business is all about. Mm. But what I'm most proud of is that myself and my co-founder, Bruce Miller, are just a couple of local guys who have started a business with an ambition to make a difference. And over time, we've been able to achieve more and that ambition has got bigger. So together, we're proof that on an individual level, you can make a difference to climate change, provided you have the drive and ambition to do so. Yeah, good stuff. All right, well, we'll come back to talking about New Zealand carbon farming later and uh, really looking forward to you explaining the business model. To you, uh, Mark Kimberley, tell us about who you are and uh, what's your interest in native forests? Thank you, Vince. Um, so I worked for many years at Sion and Rotorua researching various aspects of trees and how they grow and growth rates and things like that, um, both exotic species like radiata pine and also native species. So um, and, and in the last decade or so, a lot of my time is spent looking at carbon sequestration by trees and how it's done and how how much carbon trees can remove from the atmosphere and 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 that sort of thing. Mm. So I, I retired from Sion a couple of years ago and I've been just doing things that interest me since then really, including I've done quite a lot of work with Tane's Tree Trust on looking at some of their data that they have. They are an organization concerned with fostering basically the growing of native trees in New Zealand. And um, they have quite a lot of data measurements and plots and stands of planted native trees and also regenerating native forest around the country. And um, using some of my experience, I've been able to work out the, the rates at which these um, native forests are sequestering carbon. Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to asking you about that in a minute because we want the detail but Sean, please tell us a bit about your background and again, your connection to New Zealand forests. Thanks, Vincent. Yes, Sean Weaver, ECOS. Uh, I have a, a background in forest ecology and forest conservation that goes back to the 1980s and started my career trying to protect rainforests in the Pacific Islands and learned very early on that people who own these forests uh, need to make a living 
Um, and if we're going to invite them to protect them, we need to find another way for them to make a living on their own land. And the same is true for New Zealand farmers who own land in order to make a living. And forest conservation on that land will commonly prevent a certain type of productive activity. And if we don't compensate that landowner in some way for giving up rights to perhaps a less sustainable activity on their land, then they're less likely to voluntarily protect, grow or protect forests on their land. So I've been involved for the last 30 years, I suppose, in in helping to cover the opportunity cost of landowners that are giving up certain rights to logging, for example, and and funding that through compensatory payments. So when, when carbon markets came along, there's an opportunity to fund this activity without having ask, having to ask governments or, or philanthropy to fund that compensatory payment. And that's why I got involved in carbon markets in the mid-2000s. Um, at the time, I was teaching mm. environmental studies at Victoria mm. University, and somebody left the door open, and I snuck out and established ECOS. <laughs> I let you go. <laughs> so it's essentially what it is. And so we work on both sides of the carbon market at ECOS. We, we help businesses and organisations and products go zero carbon through mm. carbon footprint measurement, that Mm. informs a carbon Mm. reduction plan and then if people want to go zero they typically have to buy offsets and then we supply offsets from native forest carbon projects in New Zealand and also in the Pacific Islands so um, that's essentially what we do. Fantastic well that's a great depth of experience so we're looking forward to tapping into that Sean. I thought we uh, we should frame the problem so this episode is about the role that forests could play in mitigating climate change or at least the playing a part in helping us meet our objectives as a nation and also looking at some of the threats. But let's look at the problem. And I thought, Mark, you're, uh, sorry, Matt, you're pretty well positioned given that you've built a career out of this. Could you describe to us the nature of uh, the role? Uh, you know, give us a sense of just how much sequestration is going to be required if we are going to meet that 2050 net emissions um, target. So I feel like this is the hospital pass question, to be honest. Uh, you know, there's just so many different numbers swirling around climate change and uh, trying to make sense of all of that is quite difficult. So I'm going to try and simplify that if that's even possible. And fortunately, the Ministry for the Environment has just released the latest climate numbers. So I've got some recent data to go on. And that latest report goes up to 2019 when our, our national emissions were 83 million tonnes of carbon. And that's an increase of two percent over the year before that which might not seem like much of an increase but it's the largest single annual rise this century so we're going backwards in terms of our targets between 1990 and 2018 our emissions rose 57 percent over that period one of the worst performers in the oecd and while for 2020 emissions you're likely to see a significant drop caused by COVID, but that's really a one-off And so getting to our net zero target at 2050 is going to take real effort to turn around that current trend. And of course, it's not just the local commitments that we've got to take into account. New Zealand, along with every other country, has international obligations to reduce our emissions under the Paris Agreement. And the numbers on that are that by 2030, New Zealand has pledged to cut its emissions to 30% below 2005 and 11% below 1990. 
And if you look at that 1990 number, tar- that target, that's quite interesting because it's going to be really tough to move our emissions to 11% below 1990 when in 2018 we were 57% above. Mm. So that kind of illustrates the scale of the difference and, and the challenge that we face. It gets even tougher for us this year because at the UN Climate Conference in December, all countries are expected to set an even more ambitious target than the one we have now. So that hurdle is about to get higher. And in order to meet those targets, the government's established the Climate Change Commission, who's recently produced a report, and that report shows that we're going to miss our 2050 target by 6 million tonnes. So that's the gap, if you like, that you're talking about. That's the gap. And really, the Commission is asking a lot of us between now and 2050. And they're talking about things like reducing pure petrol and diesel cars, reducing stock numbers, pushing down emissions from power generation and air conditioning and fridges. But really, they're leaning pretty heavily on trees for that 2050 target. And they have some very, very ambitious goals for tree planting over the next 30 years. And those targets uh, will see New Zealand plant certainly more Indigenous trees than it's ever planted before, with a target of 16,000 hectares of new Indigenous plantings per year by 2025, and 25,000 hectares per year for the 20 years following that. To clarify, even if we are reducing in our gross, our, in fact, our, let's not talk about gross and net just yet, but even if we are reducing by these measures such as reducing herd numbers and shifting cars to electrics and more, more cycling and walking and so on, there's always going to be a component that needs to be sequestered because we're not going to be able to reduce enough to make those targets and, and trees are the easiest form of sequestration. I think, uh, in my opinion, trees are really only designed to buy us time for this problem. Trees buy us time to do the hard yards. They buy us time to do the things which fundamentally reduce our emissions. And that's the things you talk about, walking, cycling, driving electric cars. Mm -hmm. Those fundamental behaviour changes that you talk about, that stuff is hard. And it takes time to create those sorts of changes in an economy. Trees buy us time to get to our targets in the meantime while we're making those hard changes. And, and so give us a sense of what scale of planting do you think? Uh, I, I know this is the hospital pass, Matt, but um, you know, you, you're a big boy. Just give us a sense of the scale of planting that's required for us to, uh, for, for trees to do that job for us. Yeah, I think the commission summed it up pretty well, you know, with those, those targets I mentioned earlier. But honestly, those targets are extremely ambitious. And I'd be surprised if those targets survive into the final report, because the industry is not equipped to scale up to that kind of level uh, in the time periods they're anticipating. Certainly, we need a lot more trees. We really need a lot more trees in order to help with this target. But it's only one piece of the puzzle. Trees are only one bit of the picture. Mm. Uh, The hard yards are going to have to be done at some point in the economy. Uh, Thank you, Matt. That was incredibly succinct, and even I understood it. So well done to answer that question. Mark, at least one of the 
I suppose misnomers around natives has been, as I understand it, that the that the ministry has not been accurately counting the effectiveness or the scale of sequestration that's offered by native trees, by native forests. Your work has, and the work of Tane Tree Trust, has really questioned the accuracy of those lookup tables that MPI produces around natives. Can you explain your work and have I described it correctly? Yeah, so um, MPI has these lookup tables that they're, they're used for um, estimating how much carbon different types of forest can sequester as a sort of default value. And just roughly speaking, I think radiated pine, they, according to the lookup tables, it will sequester around 25 tonnes of CO2 from the atmosphere per hectare per year, roughly speaking. But according to the lookup tables, natives only do around about six tonnes per hectare per year. But those tables are really pretty conservative. And, and uh, for the um, natives in particular, they are quite a bit lower than what we've found from our measurements of actual growth rates of trees. Natives, they certainly sequester at a slow rate uh, for a while after you plant them. But eventually, they, they can actually start sequestering quite rapidly. And so we've looked at some stands of planted native trees, for example, a, a stand of Totara in Northland, which is around 100 years old, and it's currently carrying, it's sequestered over its lifetime around 1,500 tonnes of CO2, which means that it's averaged around 15 tonnes a year. Mm. And it's currently averaging close to 30 tonnes a year. So that's kind of current rate, which is way higher than what the native lookup table was suggesting. So We don't so, need to go into huge detail, but Mel, sorry, Mark, why is this the case? How, how did MPI get these numbers? Um, I think the, um, well, it's kind of what they were intended to be used for. Um, they, they're based largely, I believe, on regenerating scrubland, which is probably not the the best kind of native forest that you can grow for carbon. And and they're probably deliberately fairly conservative anyhow for various reasons. So there's a huge variation all, uh, when you look at all different types of forest, both native and exotic. And certainly those are right at the low end of what you'd expect from natives. Um, you, you can certainly do much better mm. if you have the right sort of trees growing at the right stocking and on the good sites. Yes. What are the chances of the government or MPI in particular changing its stance or changing those lookup tables, or are they internationally determined? No, they, I, I, I'm not an expert on how that was all done, and but they're used for a specific purpose um, in the as a kind of default value for land for small landowners um, to work out how much carbon they're sequestering so they can carbon credit. So they have a fairly limited use. They're not really intended as a kind of general um, idea of what trees will sequester. Um, so, yeah, so hopefully the, the um, research we are doing and the, the measurements we are taking will give a better, more accurate view of what, mm. what you can expect to sequester from native forestry. Sean, um, Sean Weaver, going to your experience with uh, both here and in the Pacific, would you say that the role of indigenous forest as a carbon source is, is it well understood and 
to what extent do these new figures that Tane's Tree Trust and and uh, Mark is talking about elevate the potential for native forests to play a, a bigger role in climate mitigation? Yeah, firstly, native forests deliver a whole lot more services than just carbon storage, as many people fully understand. And the the benefit of native forest carbon projects and permanent forest projects uh, like the projects that Matt's doing and the projects that we're doing is that they're, they're delivering a, a broad range of ecosystem services, many of which are including building climate resilient landscapes that are going to have permanent forest on them and, and help uh, landscapes be more resilient to things like extreme weather events like floods and, and, and droughts, and especially floods and flood damage. And, and this is true in New Zealand, but also, and especially in the Pacific Islands, which are very, very exposed to cyclone damage. And the, the damage to the economies of the Pacific Islands and those communities is, is much more severe and intense than, than we get in New Zealand. So on the one hand, there's a really important agenda to reduce emissions at the, on the demand side, uh, but also sequester as much carbon as we can, but also to build as many climate resilient landscapes as we can. And this resilience is, is in also incredibly important. And Matt pointed out that, you know, the tree solution buys us time from an, an emission emissions management perspective, but permanent forests do more than that as well. They, they, they build resilient landscapes and those landscapes and landforms can be maintained for thousands of years. So they're a, a permanent rehabilitation of erosion prone lands that really should never, many of them should never have been in pasture in the first place and are only profitable because they're exporting lots of sediment downstream and not having to pay the cost of that. So, you know, we've, we've got an opportunity in New Zealand at the moment to change the rural uh, landscape for the better, for, for, for resilience, and also protect biodiversity. I mean, New Zealand has suffered a massive biodiversity decline over the last couple hundred years. You know, we're the last major landmass to be populated by humans in the world, and there's been a massive decline in biodiversity wherever we see farms. There used to be forests most of the, most of the time, and those lowland forests had very high biodiversity on, on them as a very unique landform. And so this carbon forestry agenda gives us an opportunity to turn back that tide, but do so in a way which actually makes a living for landowners. And that's the key point. That's true in New Zealand. It's also true in the Pacific Islands because in the islands uh, and in New Zealand, landowners on, on relatively marginal lands often struggle to make a prosperous living on those lands anyway. And asking them to go into bat for the climate system without some sort of help financially is, is just not going to not going to really deliver and, and we saw that with you know we tried to sort of recover the New Zealand East Cape from Cyclone Bowler with some stimulation and 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 and, and funding support but it, it only really tinkered around the edges we didn't do a, a very large scale reforestation of what could have been done and we've got an opportunity to do that now so on the adaptation and resilience side great opportunities on the emissions um, management side also great opportunities but uh, i also echo what matt said it's so important that we don't see forests as a get out of jail free card they are part of the puzzle and in fact if we didn't use forests as part of the solution we certainly wouldn't get there that's not only for new zealand but globally it's mm. also partly because globally forests contribute a, a, a really significant proportion of, of global emissions around about 15% or so of the global total of emissions 
comes from the global forest sector, which is probably about as big as the entire country of the United States across all sectors of emissions. Is that because of the emissions that come from the processing, the harvesting, the processing and the manufacture of of, of timber products? That's that's part of the puzzle. But when, when forests are cut down, and, and transformed into agricultural landscapes or degraded. The wood that's in those forests, which is built of out of carbon dioxide, stored as carbon in those trees, um, that decomposes and burns and, and mm. gets back in the atmosphere. So it's mostly emissions from the decomposition of that wood, which goes back into the air. And what we need to do all around the world is slow down the, the deforestation rates and slow down the forest degradation rates by protecting existing forests, existing biodiversity habitats and masterpieces, as well as growing new forests, which is akin to paying new and young painters to, to, to build future masterpieces. Mm. So it, it's, it's a really important complementary measure to the global effort to reduce emissions and to manage our, our global climate change aspirations. But I think what you are, if I can summarize or what you're saying is that the the climate emergency is providing a perfect opportunity for us to reforest and discover and enjoy the full benefits of forest all the things we've talked about previously on these episodes you know the 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 non-timber benefits of forests whether they have commercial such as tourism or honey through to the spiritual and ecological values of of just being alive and well through to the as you say, the kind of mitigation factors of of providing resilience, that, that the climate emergency is a perfect excuse, if you like, for rediscovering and reinvesting in forests in general. Yeah, it's a, it's, I agree. It's a great incentive for us to rediscover the value of trees and forested landscapes for a broad range of ecosystem services that they provide, among which include the well-being we get from being wrecked less as an economy when the next cyclone hits, but also benefiting from the fact that um, spending time in forests and having forested landscapes is good for uh, our well-being in, in so many other ways. But uh, it's really valuable. It's really valuable to to measure the financial and economic benefits of those ecosystem services, as well as the the non economic or non-financial benefits, because when we add up those financial benefits, they add up to quite a lot. So for example, if you were to have a climate resilient landscape that experienced extreme weather events like cyclones, but did less damage to say the economy of Hawke's Bay, then you can actually put a price on the value of that hinterland Mm -hmm. management. And that price is the avoided cost of all of that damaged infrastructure, all of those damaged roads and bridges and all of those damaged farms and and, and houses and productivity. And and this is very much about building a resilient economy. So so this is not just a a mission to look after nature. It's a mission to look after people as well. Now, there are forests and forests, and I suppose the emphasis of this whole series has been about growing indigenous forest, native forest. And the the challenge that we have in New Zealand is that at the moment we have a lot of exotic Pinus radiata, a terrific tree, there's no denying it, um, and has a role. And so I'm really curious, Matt, about your business model, which does see huge planting of, of exotics on traditional New Zealand farmland with a view as I understand it, to transitioning to native forests eventually over time. I wonder if you could explain your business model and what the opportunity is both in the short term and in the long term. 
Sure, and thanks, Vince. Um, so as I mentioned, our business is growing trees to preserve the planet. And uh, over the last decade, our trees have captured more than 20 million tonnes of carbon, which is the equivalent of taking every car off New Zealand roads for a whole year. Or to make it live for you, since you've been on this webinar, uh, our trees have stored about 160 tonnes of carbon, uh, which is like taking about 160 cars off the road since you logged on. Uh, so that's kind of the scale at which we're operating at. But we're ambitious and we have uh, set ourselves major goals to do much more. This year alone, we'll plant 7 million trees. Uh, on top of the 66 we currently have. And it's interesting that Sean mentioned the landowner income. So to make it worthwhile for landowners, you have to find a way to help them live. And we partner with thousands of landowners in New Zealand, iwi, farmers and individuals. And over that time, we've paid them 73 million in carbon income over our 10 years. So we're certainly doing our part to make it attractive for landowners to uh, consider permanent forestry. Um, and so, I just ask a, a really quick question, Matt. That 73 million is derived from issuing carbon credits? Exactly. So that's carbon income derived from the land that the forests have been planted on. So it's essentially, as Sean says, uh, the reward or the compensation that the landowner gets for putting that uh, forest or putting that land into forest. Um, and as you mentioned, our focus is on planting permanent regenerating forests. So I'll talk about what that is to answer your question. Uh, so there's a number of components to this, but I'll try and summarise it. Uh, the approach starts with the selection of the right land, and that's absolutely critical uh, for the program to be successful. For us, we look for the rough country, the steep erosion-prone country, often isolated and hard to get to. And over 95% of our 66 million trees are planted on really marginal farmland. Mm -hmm. So we don't plant on quality farmland. And that's been our operating model for 11 years, long before it was topical to talk about it. So Sean mentions the opportunity to reorient the landscape. And for us, we're focused on that, that land that perhaps shouldn't have been in farmland in the first place. That's the stuff that we're after. Any better land that we come across, we sell back into the community so it can continue to be farmed. Last year alone, we sold nine small farms back into local communities. So we're very much about the right tree in the right place, and that's always been our operating model. And you don't but, necessarily have to own that land. Your point is you're leasing it from the existing owners? Exactly. So about half of our trees we own ourselves, land and trees, uh, and the other half we partner with landowners who um, are interested in deriving a carbon income from those trees. So having selected that kind of marginal land, we then look for land where there are existing native trees that can provide a seed stock to kickstart the process of regeneration. And our estate currently includes 6,000 hectares um, of native forests. And we look for blocks which have indigenous forest already scattered around, amongst the, the block, or perhaps are around the outside of the block. That's the ideal type of land for us. That's what we look for. Once we've chosen that block, we then establish what's called a nurse crop. Um, and this acts kind of like an umbrella. Uh, which protects and nurtures the indigenous species underneath. And then by carefully managing that nurse crop, we can create the right environment for it to regenerate over time into an indigenous and biodiverse forest. And along the way, the annual income from the carbon provides the ongoing resources necessary to make that transition possible. 
So that's essentially how we operate our model and how regeneration works in a practical context. And that science has been around since the 70s. Uh, and for the last three years, we've worked with an independent team of forest scientists to pull together all of that research and start the process of operationalizing it. And that process is ongoing. We're very optimistic about the progress we've made so mm-hmm. far. Do you share any of the concerns that are in the community at the moment about the predominance of radiata forest as an alternative, uh, as a fast-growing part of the farmland? And I'm thinking in particular, the, you know, the, some of the concerns around, for instance, the loss of farmland. You say that you're, you're, you're not targeting productive pasture. Yeah, look, exactly. And uh, there's a lot of debate about this at the moment. But for us, that's always been a fundamental value of ours. We're not interested in planting on land that is productive as farmland. Our opinion, and it is only our opinion, is that trees should not be planted on land that is productive for farming. That's just our opinion, but that's our our operating philosophy. We sympathise with the concerns that communities express about uh, how that land is being locked up um, and what that means for their communities. But our model of regeneration is very labour intensive. Um, So we create jobs in the communities where we plant long term jobs because there's a lot of work that needs to go on in these forests over many decades. Yeah, I'm really curious about that management exercise because uh, I'm assuming that, you know, by some miracle, native forests don't just spring up underneath the darkened canopy of a pine forest. So can you tell us about what kind of, you know, yeah, tell us about that management. Yeah, how do you manage a transition and, and maybe even get some, give us some specific examples of areas that you see it working in? It's very, very site-specific is the first point to make. So every block will need a different plan and every block will need more or less management intervention to get it to its destination. And so it's critical that having identified the right kind of block that has the right potential, uh, that you then have the right plan in place for making it possible. And so having established the nurse crop that we've talked about, the way that you encourage the Indigenous to come through is by creating light wells in that canopy. And so essentially it's like punching holes in the canopy of the forest and letting light in underneath. And so exactly how you do that, where you do it, when you do it, how big the holes are, where they are in the forest, when exactly in the evolution of the forest that you do it, are all critical decisions that need to be made and are very site-specific. In many cases, if you've got the right established Indigenous, either around the outside or with, ideally within the forest, you will have momentum of seed source, which will create what's called seed rain in these light wells, which will start to kickstart that process of natural regeneration. But in reality, there's also going to need to be some planting. We need to plant uh, understory indigenous in those light wells in order to get them going. And also the, cr- the other critical aspect of this is pest control. And I know you're going to come on and talk about that in a minute, but if you're, all you're doing is growing candy for pests to eat, then you're wasting your time. You've <laughs> got to get control of those animals and get them out and keep them out of those blocks for the program to be successful. It's an expensive exercise that what you're talking about. It does the business model 
sustain that level of management? And in particular, does it sustain it over the long term? Because what time frame um, Matt, are we talking about for this kind of, according to your model, to for this regeneration to occur? Look, the science uh, indicates that it takes decades. You know, this is a long-term process. But a lot of the groundwork can be done early. So if you choose the right block, you plant the right nurse crop, you have the right holes or light wells punched in the forest at the right time, and you establish the right indigenous in those light wells in an environment without predators, then you have set the forest on the right path. All of those actions happen in the first 30 years of the forest. So really what you're talking about is investing the majority of your money in the first 30 years. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, because of the way our model works, the radiata trees produce a lot of carbon credits, absorb a lot of carbon, produce a lot of carbon credits over that crucial 30 years. And that's not only when the planet needs it the most, but that's when the money is needed the most in the project in order to do those activities. And who does that labour, Matt? Is that something that you take on yourselves as, as carbon farming or is that an obligation of the landowner? Uh, It depends on the arrangement. Typically, uh, where we are planting on other people's land, we take responsibility for that management. But in the case particularly of iwi groups uh, who are very interested in the creation of uh, skills and employment opportunities in their areas, we will look to um, have a structured plan around how we use local people on particular blocks. Sean, the... The model sounds fantastic. Thank you, Matt, um, for answering those questions. The model does sound fantastic, and uh, if if it was successful, I guess we would be feeling quite excited about this opportunity. But what confidence do you have as a scientist that the model is correct? What confidence do you have as an ecologist that this level of management can be sustained to actually deliver, in the end, an Indigenous forest? You know, it's a very good question. It's a question that we get asked a lot with the work that we do. So like New Zealand Carbon Farming, we use occasionally a a mixed model. So just as a a preface, our, our planting model will plant native trees only when we can. And sometimes the whole project can be native only. But what it will do is deliver a, an economic performance, which is nowhere near as good as uh, when the exotics are involved. But if the landowner and the investor are happy with that, then it's natives only. In fact, there's an investment that we've just been brokering, finalising today, where it's 100% natives. It's just that the internal rate of return is a bit more pedestrian than what might be delivered from a project with pine trees in it but or any other exotic. So pine trees are not the only exotic, of course. An exotic tree is any tree that didn't come from New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And there's an awful lot to choose from which aren't going to go wild and that are going to create good nursery species and got to perform well as a carbon crop. But with our model... If the internal rate of return or the economic performance of the native-only project doesn't quite get to the magic number, doesn't quite get over the line for the landowner and or the investor, then we intro- our, our model is to then introduce um, a hectare or another hectare or another hectare of, of exotics. In a, imagine it's a 100-hectare project and it doesn't quite get over the line. So then we introduce one, two, three, four, five and hectares of, of exotics until we get to that magic number. Because for us, the, the exotics serve 
uh, at least two purposes. One is to fund the natives and the other one is to fund the natives. Because if you can't fund your dreams, you, your dreams will stay dreams. You won't be able to turn them into reality. So financing the gig is so important. And if, you know, there's many, and I, I come from a kind of a pure native forest ecology background. And I've realized that perfect is the enemy of the good. And especially in a climate emergency, and especially when there's not unlimited grant money floating around for people to just go out and cover the landscape and trees, because conservation costs money. And so even if you're maximizing the native element, commonly there will be a need to introduce some exotics to the mix. Now, the question is then, well, how do you manage those exotics? Um, and of course, uh, that will differ depending on the model that you're using. And Matt's approach is, is a model that essentially creates that shade and shelter to provide a microenvironment in those light wells to enable native forest to regenerate. Now, people who understand native forest regeneration will know that native forests regenerate in light wells in the native forest. So you can imagine a notion of native forest and then imagine holes in that forest whenever a big tree falls over. That creates a light gap and a light environment for, for native forest regeneration in that forest. And, and so forest ecologists who have understood this, as Matt has said, from the 70s, know that you can regenerate for native forests in those kind of light wells. And if the, if the starting forest is not a native forest, well, the natives in the light well probably don't care that much. In fact, they're probably quite happy that they've got an environment to live in at all. Because remember, that environment used to be marginal pasture and had been marginal pasture for many, many decades. And so um, transitioning into this mixed model is certainly a lot better often than erosion prone pasture. Then, as I've said, the, the, the way we manage the exotics in our model is slightly different where we would, let's say we plant 100 hectares of, of, of land and, and I don't know, 30 hectares of that is exotics. Um, then those exotics, we would begin creating corridors in that exotic forest uh, after about 12 years, take out 10%, replace it with natives and actively plant those natives. And then five years later, do the same. And then five years later, do the same. And if you can't carry on doing that, you'll find that in 60 years, you've got a, nat a pure native forest where the exotics have been in there for that early period. And then they're no longer needed and they're out. Also, another, another thing that's important is that if you're doing this on private land, people typically don't want their land value to go to zero. And if you've got no productive activity ever forecasted after 60 years, then the land value is going to drop even now. And so it's important to maintain that land value by having an opportunity for some sort of cash flow in the future. Now, one way to do that is to have uh, some sort of crop that you can harvest and replace in the future. Uh, and the way that we would do it is to have a native crop of, say, totra, like what Tane, Tane's Trees Trust has, has done, and where you then begin harvesting that totra in sustainable forest management, continuous canopy modalities, starting in maybe year 80. And then you've got a, a, an opportunity for a cash flow from really high quality native timbers, essentially in perpetuity, as you've transitioned from marginal farmland into permanent forest, which is maintaining that cash flow. Because after 100 years, you're still going to have to kill possums and, and stoats and ferrets, unless somebody has come up with a, a clever trick to eradicate them in the meantime. And so there's always a need. And even if it wasn't for those pests, there's always a need for conservation management. Mm. And so financing that through an intervention that creates a cash flow from that landscape is, is, is highly valuable. And again, just to reiterate the point that 
the perfect is the enemy of the good. If we were to try and just be um, not touching these forests at all, then the business model wouldn't work and we just wouldn't even get started. Sure. So compromise is important here. A question for Mark. Um, as a scientist, as someone been involved in the forestry sector for a long time, do you think that we are taking a gamble by using as much pine as we are on the hope, really, that intergenerationally we're going to be able to manage them to transition? In other words, are you buying the argument that Matt and um, Sean are putting forward? Yeah, I mean, um, certainly the pines will grow very well for you know, 100 years or more um, and sequester a lot of carbon. Um, exactly how that transition is done, I think it, it, w- it certainly would be fairly tricky to, to manage um, and it's probably a bit outside my area of expertise to really to talk too much about it. But um, um, it's certainly not a, a simple thing to do um, to transition from an exotic you know, forest through into a native, which require quite a lot of intervention, I would think. I mean, the, uh, under the pine trees will um, grow in the in the canopy. What develops underneath, unless um, there's a fair amount of light getting in, is, is going to be pretty minimal. Um, there'll certainly be a, a lot of different species growing up there, but not much actual um, carbon stored in the understory. And mm-hmm. um, so, um, exactly how you would encourage that to develop is. Um, I think it still requires quite a lot of work and um, it certainly wouldn't be easy. Can I just add to that too, um, Mark? Um, And this is one of the reasons why we, in our model, actively remove the exotics and then actively plant the natives in those those corridors um, so that we can then manage that transition. It's a more expensive model um, and um, the internal rates return will be lower. Uh, and so I guess the, the success of middle path solutions is very much dependent on the appetite for investors to take a lower than absolute maximum return on their, on their investment. Because if the internal rate of return, in other words, is similar to the interest rate on money invested, if that is a lower number, we can deliver more and more native only plantings or minimize the number of exotics that go in. And also the word exotic doesn't just mean pine trees it can mean evergreen Mm. oaks for example i mean if you walk even here in christchurch which is kind of a very dry uh sunburnt landscape um you go up to victoria park and and walk around under the oak trees there and the understory is full of natives um and so exotics uh, include things like oaks um they include uh, leafy trees as well as uh, softwood species, which are the, the pine trees and the, the redwoods and things like that. But fundamentally, if the economics don't work, then it's going to stay marginal farmland. And this is where, yes, we do have to take a gamble because the gamble of not acting is is a bigger gamble. I think that's a key thing to take home is the cost of doing nothing, the cost of not doing this kind of work is going to be far greater than the cost of making an error here and there. And, and what what Matt's uh, company is doing and what we're doing is getting the best advice available. Sometimes the same scientists are involved and I'm a, I've got a PhD in forestry myself. So we, we're, we're doing our due diligence on the, the forestry models uh, to minimise these risks and use 
best practice. And also, if you've got an adaptive management regime, you can adapt your management through time as you learn more. Matt will be able to do that in his projects. We've designed our projects to do that as well. Uh, I, I will leave this issue, but I just want to uh, ask one question to Matt, if I may. Matt, what accountability is there? Should should part of, and I'm not saying the entire model would fail, but if parts of your program, for instance, there might be parts of the country where pests get out of control or where you've introduced a fire risk because you've got a permanent forest, um, what accountability exists for you uh, and for those landowners who, uh, and presumably, you know, this accountability needs to be intergenerational if the model doesn't prove to be as successful as we hope. Yeah, look, I'm pleased you've asked that question um, because there is a um, very strong answer to it. Um, so legislation passed last year creates a new permanent forest category in the ETS. Uh, and that permanent forest category effectively ensures that forests are protected in perpetuity by creating tough penalties for the people managing those forests. So essentially, if you register your forests in that permanent forest category, you are exposing yourself personally, not your company, you personally to penalties uh, for not managing those forests in accordance with the permanent forest uh, regime. And I'd go so far as to say that no forest project, exotic or indigenous, can say that its trees are protected in perpetuity unless they're registered in that permanent forest category with the associated personal obligations for those involved. For our part, we will register all of our forests in that permanent forest category in the ETS. That makes us highly motivated to resolve any of those issues that Sean talks about um, and any of the uncertainties that Mark mentioned. Uh, we have our heads in the lion's mouth here, and that's how much we believe in the potential for regeneration to benefit New Zealand and the planet. Thank you for answering that, Matt. There are so many questions, and we're just not going to get time to go to them. So let, let me just throw a couple to you, and this is probably one for Sean and for Matt. Uh, it's from Jackie Amos, who's one of our contributors and a tree ecologist and scientist. So she asks... In, in particular, she's curious to know what kind of trees are being planted. What types of trees has your company been investing in for permanent forests? And a related question, can you, can you explain in more detail uh, exactly how that transition happens once the pines reach their maturity? Sure, I can have a quick go at that first and then pass over to Matt. So... For example, the investment model that we looked at today and that we've been working on the last um, month or so, a few months, is um, native species. So it's planting um, species that are already growing on the landscape that the project is going to be located on. It's some Maori land up in Northland. And um, so that's a, that's a native forest. It's going to have a mixture of totra There'll be some manuka, there's some mahui. There's a range of a range of species. One of the interesting things when you plant native forests or plant any forest is that nature is also going to do some of the planting for you. Mm. And that's going to come from the, 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 the kind of seed rain that Matt mentioned, where nature will, through bird dispersal and also through wind dispersal, will bring native seeds to the site. And... Um, 
So an element of the project will be planted by nature anyway. Uh, for us, when there's an exotic element, um, let's say the farmer wants a woodlot uh, as part of the project to lift the performance because maybe natives on their own won't compete with beef and lamb revenue that they're giving up then it's really up to the farmer to determine what their preference is. One farmer that we've worked with wants um, oaks on their land, and so oaks are, are going in. Another landowner wanted eucalypts on their land, and so eucalypts are going in. Others want um, a, a redwood, a redwood forest for that woodlot. Others want a pine. And, and the reasons to choose these things might relate to what kind of wood you want from it, when it comes to harvest time, it might relate to the costs of establishing them. You know, a pine seedling is about 45 cents. Uh, a eucalypt seedling might be 65 cents and a, a redwood might be a $1.80, say. And, and seedling price is a very sensitive part of the financial model. And so your choice of seedling type is going to impact a lot on the economic performance of the project. So when it comes to the transition uh, uh, to, to natives, um, so for us, uh, the, the, as I mentioned before, uh, imagine there's X hectares of exotic, whether it's a softwood or a hardwood, um, then uh, that will be managed as a, essentially an exotic woodlot after um, about 12 years. It depends on the species and it depends on the situation, but let's imagine it's about 12 to 15 years. The first corridor of, of that exotic forest is cut down and then replanted in natives. And in those early years, you're not going to get really any cost recovery on that timber because it's not really merchantable at that very young age. But as the, 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 the five years later, do it again, and five years later, do it again. And as you continue that process, the timber that you're taking out of the forest uh, can fund the reforestation of that same corridor in natives. And so essentially, we're actively using the exotics to fund the planting of the natives uh, and ideally planting a, a majority of the area in natives anyway. And then the minority which has exotics, that minority area would be transitioned through this corridor model. Uh, so that if you repeat that, if you do 10% removal and replacement every five years, then within, fifth, within 60 years, you've now got a, a fully native forest where you started off with an exotic woodlot. Okay, thank you, Sean. Matt, in the interests of time, I'm going to ask you a different question. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you a chance to go into detail about the transition, but I'm curious to know about this. And we've had several questions about the continuous cover forestry. And does your model allow for continuous cover forestry? Are, are you Will you be harvesting uh, trees within your permanent forests? And can you, if, if you are, can you explain the model? Yeah, so we won't be harvesting. We are a no-harvest model. Uh, we The only cutting of trees that we do in the forest are to create light wells. Other than that, we do not remove timber. We do not look for timber as an income stream. Um, so we are a pure uh, regeneration model from day one. We're looking to how we can transition that forest as quickly as possible. And is that a lost opportunity? And do you think it's a, a model that you think you could change over time? Yeah, look, uh, we're aware of Sean's model and, and uh, the potential to add additional income streams always is more attractive from an investment point of view. Um, you know, honestly, we've got our hands full um, with the scale of our uh, portfolio and, uh, 
perfecting the operationalization of regeneration uh, with our scientists. Um, so, but that's certainly something we may look at in the future. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, there is a question here. Uh, there's quite a few questions also related to soil. Um, there's a question here from Paula Warren, for instance, is how is carbon sequestered into soils rather than standing crop factored into sequestering measures? And I, I don't know if Mark, are you interested in answering that question? Uh, well, just briefly, um, soil is um, certainly there's a huge amount of carbon stored in forest soils. And it often basically isn't measured or not very accurately because it's very hard to actually measure it. But um, certainly it's a big factor. But most of the models that we develop aren't actually taking any account of the soil. Um, and the, the assumption is that the soil, that changes in the soil are fairly gradual anyhow. Also, there's no economic instrument in the ETS to measure soil. So even if you did measure soil, and if the soil measurement demonstrated that there was a whole lot of beneficial soil carbon sequestration, uh, you couldn't turn that into any carbon credits. So that would be a co-benefit of a project, a wee bit like a biodiversity co-benefit. Perhaps a question for next week's panel, Vince. <laughs> I think it could be because next week we are looking at mechanisms and oh, we will get into the ETS as well next week and its deficiencies in uh, offering solutions around all the elements of forests, including soil. Uh, we are out of time and I feel like we've only just started. But look, it's been a real pleasure talking about this. Uh, we do feel like we have uh, only just uh, scraped the, uh, the surface of what the potential is for forests uh, to provide climate resilience and, uh, and sequestration. So let me please thank you, Mark Kimberley, Matt Walsh and um, Sean Weaver for joining us. Please do come back next week because we've got Dr. David Hall from AUT, also Annabelle Chartres from PwC, both of who have contributed to the Aotearoa Circle and to Pure Advantage thinking about uh, biodiversity credits and other mechanisms that could be used to incentivise foresters and landowners. And also Kevin Prime, who is actually a living, breathing example of a landowner and of, of a family business that is doing very much the things we talked about in today's episode, planting native and exotic forests in a, in a whanau-run business. So we look forward to that episode. Thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Thank you to the team. And um Cheers. Thank you. See you later. To learn more about Pure Advantage and the work we do, visit pureadvantage.org. Watch the stunning short documentary Otato Nahiri and read insights from hundreds of expert contributions that highlight New Zealand's strategic advantages by putting the environment at the centre of all business decisions. Remember to follow us on Instagram, and if you found this conversation valuable, please rate this podcast, share and subscribe. Thanks again for being on the journey with us.